With nearly a thousand hot springs, famously strong red wine, and a history as spicy as its peppers, a trip through the Hungarian countryside can be a delight. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today, we're getting an insider's guide to Hungary, especially its quirky small towns and resort spas outside its bustling capital city of Budapest. Joining us today is Hungarian tour guide Peter Poltzman. He'll field your calls as we plan a Hungarian holiday in the heart of Europe's civilized cafe culture. Don't be surprised to see big guys with small speedos, and even ladies. I mean, yeah, it's quite a sight. <laughs> as a proud Hungarian, Peter will help us understand his country's rich culture and history, from the nomadic Magyars to the genteel Habsburgs, through a troubled communist age, and right up to the cutting-edge European Union of today. And we'll hear some of your stories of travel in the Hungarian back roads. We're going heavy on the paprika as we explore the Hungarian countryside beyond Budapest on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're traveling to Hungary. And in order to do that well, we need some Hungarian help. I've imported a brilliant Hungarian guide who's sitting right across from me, Peter Poltzman from Budapest. Peter, thanks for joining us. Well, I'm happy to be here, Rick. Now, actually, you were born outside of Budapest, right? That's true. Not too far from uh, Budapest, though, about 30 miles off to the uh, to the north. There's an area called the Danube Bend, uh-huh. and there's a town called Estergom over there. That's my hometown. Estergom is famous. I've, I haven't heard many uh, names of many towns outside of Budapest, but you do hear the word Estergom. Uh, Why is that's it so true. famous? That's true. It's actually a, th- a smaller town than uh, the other ones in the countryside, but that was the country's first capital. First of all, St. Mm. Stephen, a mighty king, ruled the country from there. So it's a religious center, historically. Uh, yeah. Uh, we've actually got a big basilica over there that, that is still the seat of the Archbishop of Hungary, who is the leader of the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, okay, so the, yeah. the religious capital of the country is still Estergom yep. rather than Budapest. John Paul II visited uh, Estergom, my hometown there yeah. as well, and celebrated a huge mass. If you go down to the... Uh, uh, well, I don't call it a basement, but uh, what's that? The crypt. The crypt of uh, the church. You can see him there praying. We're already learning about outside of Budapest. So that's the theme of this show today, this episode. We're talking about a great nation, Hungary. And I think everybody goes to Budapest, but not many people get outside. What is it? Is it about like... I, my hunch is there's about 10 million people in Hungary and 2 million of them are in Budapest. What's well, the... you got it right, yeah. Uh, almost 10 million and, uh, well, it's a slight more than 10 million and uh, almost two live there. Bit of an awkward situation because uh, the second biggest town is only like 200,000, so one-tenth of Budapest size. That's why Budapest dominates. I was going to ask you why, because every country has a dominant city, it seems like, but in Hungary, it's it's not that Budapest is the majority of the people, like in Greece, almost half of the 10 million people in Greece live in Athens. But the deal in in Hungary is there's no other big cities. That's true. Actually, Budapest was designed for a much bigger capital. That's pre-First World War and was governing a much bigger empire. But uh, right now, it's a much smaller country, but we still have 2 million people over there. Now, you grew up in a small town, and uh, there's uh, 80% of Hungarians uh, don't call Budapest home. What do they think about <laughs> Budapest? What's the relationship between the countryside and the big city? Budapest is uh, the mighty big capital. You go shopping there, and you go there for the entertainment. I still remember my mom and dad took me up to the zoo, uh, and this was the first place where we could travel on the underground. And I was, I was always waiting for the underground because there's one line that goes underneath the Danube. I wanted to see fish, and I was so disappointed when I, when I couldn't see one. So I was like, oh. Yeah, underground, yeah, and escalators and everything. So, yeah, you go for the entertainment element. Uh, so you were the small-town boy. You went to the big city. I and you, was. You'd, you were excited about going into an <laughs> underground. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We, we have a, we've got a big one, and uh, and one of the oldest one was there as well. So I, I was always like, wow, that's the big town. Yeah. yeah, Budapest. Now, when we think about Hungary, we think of ethnic distinction from the rest of Europe. Hungarian language is, is different than all of the languages that surround Hungary. How do we account for that? Um, it's a strange story, but originally Hungarians came from the east. And uh, right now, there's not too many languages, for example, related to Hungarian, um, only Finnish and Estonian. So Finnish and Estonian are, yeah. when you look at Finnish, you, you recognize this is, I mean, yeah. you probably can't understand it, but you recognize it's the similar language. That's huh? true. Right now, we don't understand them any longer. But for example, basic words like hand is, yeah. is uh, keys in Hungarian, kes in Finnish. Okay. Um, and there's, there's all these strange stories of how we actually finally realized that there's connection because for a number of years we didn't even suspect this and we thought maybe German, French would be uh, a great connection and no one thought about the Finnish but oh, back in the... Uh, so you 18- wanted to be associated with the French I suppose when the oh, French God, were the creme de la creme. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Germans, yeah. And but then you can you can conclude
conclude from this that the Finns and the Hungarians originated from some similar place way over yeah. uh, in eastern Russia sure or something enough. like we've this? Sure enough. We've got scientific proof for that. Uh, uh, from the Euro Mountains, uh, that's where we started migrating from. And, uh, well, they just sort of took a wrong turn and ended up around the Baltic Sea. That's what we So there's about. 10 million <laughs> Hungarians, give or take, and there is a political border that, uh, you know, separates you from Serbia and from uh, Slovakia and uh, Austria and Czech Republic, Croatia, yeah. I suppose. Romania. Mm-hmm. Romania. Are the borders clean or are there a lot of Hungarians outside of Hungary in those neighboring countries? Oh, the Hungarian diaspora, relatively speaking, is one of the biggest ones in the whole world. Um, I guess right now that the figures would come around, uh, let's say, altogether... 13, 14 million Hungarians speak Hungarian, uh, but only 10 million are Hungarian citizens, which means that uh, about 3 or 4 million live outside Hungary. Really? A third of all native-speaking Hungarians live outside of Hungary? That's true. The uh, biggest ethnic groups would be in Romania right now, um, Slovakia, uh, Serbia. Ukraine has got a small group of Hungarians there as well. Interestingly enough, in Austria... You can find Hungarians there as well. And are they treated well by their host nations? Okay, this or is, is a, that let's get yeah, into that. We are getting into the hot issues now. But uh, yes, uh, I guess this is the biggest challenge right now. Uh, if you ask me, I guess the European Union is going to be the solution. Um, back in the past, while these countries were part of the Hungarian kingdom or the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, my impression is that we were not treating them well. And then right now that we have got minorities across the border, th- those countries are not treating their minor- minorities. So you said right the European either. Union might be the solution. Why? That's my impression. First of all, the union guarantees certain rights for minorities. The that, union that is, sticks up for ethnic groups more that, than that political is. nations. Ethnic diversity, that is true. The European Union, interestingly enough, doesn't think in terms of countries, but in terms of regions. And a number of regions do not overlap you know, just original, let's say, Hungarian counties. My hometown uh, is a center for one region that has got parts from Hungary and parts from Slovakia. Okay, but ethnically, uh, this is a big distinction. What Uh is the ethnic border versus what is the political border? Um, One thing that we can relate to, I think, uh would be Tyrol. When we think of Tyrolia, that's an ethnic group, I think, and Mm -hmm. it's uh, part of Italy, part of Austria, part Mm -hmm. of Germany. And I understand Europe would be enthusiastic about funding something that would be interesting to Tyrolean people more than Austrian people. Okay. You cannot really draw a real borderline right now uh, around the sort of the ethnic borders. Uh, Because, for example, the ethnic Hungarians live at the other end of Romania. That's not contiguous. No. No oh, way. That's compli- um, and, well, if you if you know where the Carpathians are, that's sort of the, where the Hungarians are. We call it the region Transylvania, which literally means uh, just beyond the woods, beyond the forest. Transylvania. That's mm-hmm. right. So, uh, and that's Sivan. named by you. Oh, are named by, by Hungarians? the Hungarians. Well, that's a Latin word. Silva means okay. m- means forest. But yeah, this is the, the word that we use uh, for Transylvania. So that's the people beyond the forest. Yeah, I guess everyone knows about Dracula. Well, yeah, <laughs> but there's more to it than that. I there's suppose. more to it than that. Yeah. Now this. Treaty of Trianon is a big deal for Hungarians. Most yes. of us have never heard of it. What's this Treaty of Trianon? Um, this was uh, the treaty that was signed after the First World War in the Trianon Palace. That's why we call it Trianon. Uh, Trianon, Trianon Palace in Versailles. In, in Versailles, okay. yeah. It was actually quite an unfair decision because uh, the former Hungarian kingdom was reduced to one third of its size and half the population. You lost two thirds of your country after we World did. War One. We did. Um, which is well, did you, we, were you on the wrong side? Well, we, I guess you were. I guess in the last five hundred years, we, we, we always that was were. The end of that, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, but interestingly enough, for example, there was no one to sign it. All the Hungarians thought the whole thing was so unfair; they had to draw lots. Who's going to sign the whole thing in Nobody the end? Nobody wanted to sign it. Nobody wanted. If I'm not mistaken, we were the last ones to sign up to the peace treaty after the first. So World really, War. this was your borderline punishment for sure, being yeah. on the Austrian guard. Oh, yeah. We oh, yeah. really started the war. Oh, yeah. Once again, I don't think we were treating these minorities right and well before the First World War. And this was sort of a punishment for us. Well, you were running an Um, empire as part of the dual monarchy, right? That's true. That's true. That's true. The average Mm -hmm. person in the Habsburg Empire didn't speak German. Well, this whole training thing is is quite a quite a hard issue. If you ask the younger generations, I don't think for them it's, it's such a big deal any longer because everyone's looking forward towards the European Union. And once again, I think that's got to be a solution to the issues. While well, Romania is already in, and once the borders disappear, it will be much easier for them to okay. maintain so, their integrity I, I language. I understand there were bumper stickers calling for uh, Greater Hungary. Let's rescind this Trianon Treaty or if, something like that. If this. you come to Hungary, yeah, just take a look at the bumper stickers. And then uh, you see the like upside down Hungary. That's like the shape of the of former Hungary. And uh, well, you see that you see this whole... three times as big as it is today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. actually people that put 
put bumper stickers on oh, the cars. They do. For this. Oh, it's, and what it's you're all saying, over the place. What you're saying mm. is with the European Union, um, the issue will fade away? I guess, yes. Uh, first of all, because the issue is not that hot any longer. And then you can actually visit these people over there. Uh, my position is that I would love to see Hungarians across the border making their living there. I don't want them to come across the border, not because they would be stealing jobs, mm-hmm. not because they would be you know, uh, drawing resources from us, but because I would love to see Hungarian culture thrive across the border there, there as well. And the European Union, uh, I guess, first of all, guarantees certain rights, and secondly, funds a lot of uh, these projects. For example, they help out with building highways in Romania. So uh, we get access to all these areas. I, I do think uh, in, the, in the long run, there's going to be a solution to this. How long has Hungary been in the EU? When, when did you uh, join? 2004, May 2004, the 1st. 2004, May mm-hmm. 1st. So and that was when 10 year former Warsaw Pact nations joined the EU. Yeah. So you've had a little track record. Has it been good for the Hungarian people? Um, interestingly enough, Hungarians don't really know too much about what's going on in the European Union. You know what? <laughs> when we joined, the biggest deal was um, poppy seed, believe it or not. Hungarians were always pro-Western Europe. And then uh, we had to have a referendum and the government didn't even start persuading people that, oh, yeah, you have to vote for the yes. But in the final few days, uh, someone said that the union will not allow you to grow poppy seed in your backyard. And then people said, like, what? No poppy seed, no to the European Union. So so in the final few days, they put up big banners that, yes, you can have poppy seed in, in the European Union. Poppy seed? Why poppy would seed. you want to grow poppy seed in your backyard? Oh, well, that's for cakes. Well, you go <laughs> for strudel, cakes. You can't have a good strudel without poppy oh, seeds? God, no. My brother just is just crazy about that. He doesn't even need, need, the, need the pastry. He just needs the poppy seed. That's quite a crisis. Oh, it is. Yeah. Did people? What, what was the, was there a happy ending? Actually, everyone said yes in the end. Like I guess it was. So uh, you can grow poppy seeds in your backyard. Oh, and then the, of course they said, yeah, the European Union doesn't really interfere with uh, with that. So the EU has bumped into certain um, insurmountable hurdles with different ethnic groups and their passions, their quirky passions. And generally, the EU says, all right, if you really want your poppy yeah. seeds, yeah. all right, if you really <laughs> want to stew your food for twenty four hours, whatever. You that's can true. Do that. That's true. So there's a happy ending. People have their poppy seeds and. Hungarians are in the EU. There is a happy ending. Very nice. Peter Poltzman's joining us from Hungary as we explore Hungary beyond Budapest. This is Rick Steves. It's Travel with Rick Steves, and we'll get to your calls in a moment. Eight seven seven three 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 Rick. That's our number. Radio at ricksteves.com is the email address. That's how you reach us at Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for traveling with us. My name is Parine Beretz Etelko. I am from Hungary and I'm going to tell you a tongue breaker. Az ipofai popnak fapipája van, mert az ipofai fapipa papifapipa. In English, the priest from Ipafa has got a wooden pipe. Uh, and in Hungarian once more, az ipofai popnak fapipája van, mert az ipofai fapipa papifapipa. Happy travels, Etelka.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Peter Poltzman, coming to us direct from Budapest, the capital of Hungary. But Peter, you're a small town boy, right? I am. I am. And we're going to explore Hungary beyond the dominant capital city of Budapest. Now, Hungary is, I think, known for its formality. You think of people with big, fancy mustaches. I think of over-the-top buildings architecturally. I think of kind of a a formal language, even, the way you say things. Uh, Talk to me about the formality of Hungary and and where that comes from. I guess it all goes back to the um, Austro-Hungarian monarchy and uh, just to do things properly, just to... um yeah, just to do everything right. There's a lot of rules that uh, that you always observe, and and even in restaurants, uh, the waiters would say, "Please command, sir." That's that's so so surprising for. Please uh, command. Please or, command. Command. Command me what you want me to bring you. In the that's way true. Of it sounds strange when you translate it, but in Hungarian, this uh, this just sounds fine. Um, and yeah, the Hungarians. Um, are, well, I wouldn't say really law-abiding, but they are law-abiding. And a lot of this uh, goes hand-in-hand hand with uh, nostalgia for the good old days as well. So Because uh, those were the good old days, probably when you were, were on the winning team, part of the Austro-Hungarian <laughs> Empire. I mean, you were right there with Vienna. That's true. The so, most powerful empire in Europe. A lot has to do with uh, nostalgia, yes. Nostalgia. Especially if you go to coffee houses, let's say. You can get that old-world elegance in a coffee shop even today. That's true. That's true. So no wonder that these are the places where you dress up properly. If you go to the opera house, uh, people do dress up. This is the proper thing to do, not because they wouldn't mind going there in jeans. It's just the proper thing to do, so they do dress up. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. That's 877-333-7425. Or you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Deborah has called us from Holland in Pennsylvania. Hi, Deborah. Hello, Rick. Hello, Peter. Hi, Deborah. I'm really excited about this. I'm planning to take my family to Budapest and hopefully have my son's bar mitzvah in Budapest. And after, we'd like to tour more of the surrounding areas of Budapest, maybe go to some of the caves. I'm not really sure what will be feasible for five days. Five days. First of all, uh, let's just review quickly the great Jewish sites in Budapest. Uh, yeah, uh, first of all... Um Probably you'll be spending the first couple of days in Budapest, uh, and you said you want to explore some of the Jewish sites there? Yeah. Uh, don't miss the Great Synagogue, the second biggest one in the whole world, beautifully renovated, and uh, they, they run their own tours, and, and it's pretty easy to sort out. But also take a walk around the old uh, neighborhood. They have opened up a couple of synagogues over there recently. In this biggest synagogue, which is beautifully renovated from, uh, I think it feels like it's 100 years older, oh, ne- at least. neo-romantic or something. At least. And it's, it feels like a church. And I understand the the Jewish residents of Budapest thought things would go easier if they just sort of made their synagogue that looked like a church. But, of course, it's got all of the um, worship aids and so on that you'd find in a synagogue rather than a church. Oh, absolutely. If you go inside, it's like a huge, huge cathedral. You can see pulpits. There's an organ inside, for example. It's quite an interesting thing. They have to hire a non-Jewish person to play the organ all the time. But there's music in there. It's just lovely. It's brilliant. Uh Deborah, what was your question about going into the countryside? we will do a bar mitzvah in Budapest and then we'd maybe like to see I hear there's some beautiful caves in Hungary maybe do some hiking is there anything that's feasible for a day trip outside of Budapest Outside of Budapest, well, first of all, distances are not too big. So there's several directions where you can go to. Um, in terms of caves, uh, Budapest does have a few, but they're not really world famous. Um, but for caves, probably you would need to go down to uh, Slovenia. But there's a lot of places where you can go hiking. Um, there's an area off to the north of Budapest, which is called the Danube Bend. And there's three towns over there. Uh, you either visit the towns or you don't, but you can go hiking over there. That's one place. And the other one is um, there's the town of Eger, off to the northeast, um, up in the uh, northern mountain range, and beautiful place. And then, if you go hiking there, then don't miss the wine cellars. It's a wine-growing mm. area, and some of the best wines in the country are there. So you can combine everything in one. We like wine. You do. <laughs> is there a drinking age? Because our children like wine too. <laughs> oh, excellent! Well, drinking age over there is uh, is eighteen instead of uh, twenty-one. So if you, if you bring a child into a restaurant in Hungary and you want them to drink wine and they're 16 or 17 years old, will they serve them wine? Or will uh, they get in trouble well, if they do? Well, uh, officially, I guess they get into trouble, and probably they would look at mommy and daddy first. Okay. <laughs> and then <laughs> you'll get your wine, and then everything's up to you from that point. Okay. Okay, wonderful. 
This is a good question, Deborah, about getting outside of Budapest. And my understanding is you got three important areas. There's the Danube Bend, which is the romantic Danube. We've got it in Austria, and we've got it outside of Vienna, and we've got it in Hungary outside of Budapest. We've got Lake Balaton, which is very popular with the Hungarians to go on vacation, That's especially true. back mm-hmm. in communist times, I think. And you got the historic town of Eger. Those are all within a couple hours of Budapest. Peter, review the three, the Danube Bend, Lake Balaton, and Eger, just in a nutshell for us travelers. Oh, right. Uh, well, Danuban is probably the most accessible because it's uh, within a short range. Uh, you probably need a, a car. It's a bend where the river Danube hits two mountain ranges. And then you can drive there in uh, the first town. is about 20 minutes drive from Budapest. And uh, the town that is furthest away is like, uh, what, an hour. So this is the most accessible. And there's a lot of things that you can do there. Hiking, town visits as so well. you got a famous Baroque town there. Uh, St. Andre, St. Andrews. And you got a famous castle. That's true, Visegrad, um, and th- this is just right in the middle of the bend, and there's a third town called Estergom with a beautiful cathedral over there. And that's the historic capital and where the uh, the religious center of Hungary to this that's day. That's true, that's true. Wasn't there some heroics there during communist times where the Catholic Church was standing up against the communist government in some way? Oh, yeah. Well, the, the church was always one uh, organization that stood up against. Uh, there's... I, I find that so inspirational that people actually joined the church, not because they necessarily wanted to be worshipful, but they wanted to do something to speak up against the government. That's true. I guess even some of the names might be familiar to uh, American people here. Uh, Josef Mincenti, uh, Cardinal Mincenti, was one of the people who was actually imprisoned by the Nazis and by the communists as well. Ooh, so what a distinction. He, he was like a Democrat yeah. <laughs> within the church. And he's buried right now in the uh, Estergom Cathedral. And when John Paul II came to our place, to Estergom, he celebrated a mass and prayed at the place where Mincenti is wow. buried. So um, this whole area is really interesting. Lots of natural beauty and lots of history and culture in the Danube Bend. Talk about Lake Balaton. Lake Balaton is uh, the Hungarian Sea. That's what we call it because we are landlocked. <laughs> so this is this is the, the closest you can get to uh, to a sea. It's uh, one of the biggest freshwater lakes in um, Central Eastern Europe. And this is just where Hungarians would go. At the weekend, in the summer, you take your summer vacation over there. And uh, it's a really shallow lake on the northern shore. There's a lot of hills over there. Western shore is sort of pretty flat. Is the charm just having a chance to lay on the beach and pretend you're at the Riviera? Yeah, first that's of all. It. Yeah, that, that's the biggest attraction. And if you've seen other great lakes and other great resorts, there's pro- I, I, frankly, I think Balaton's kind of boring. Um, if you travel a lot, yes. Uh, if you do, <laughs> yeah. Um, then take me to Eger because point. I think Eger has a little more distinct interest for a traveler. That's true. Eger is a charming town, first of all, uh, and it's really close to the heart of Hungarian people because this is where we defeated the Turks once, uh, way back in the uh, 1500s. The Turks probed that far in, into Europe. Well, yep. Uh, interestingly enough, we still have a minaret in Eger, which has got right now right now the cross on top just to know who's at home. But yeah, that's that's very interesting. You've got a Christian cross on top of almost anything that the Christians have conquered against the other that's guys. That's true. That's it, true. That's, that must be the most western or northwestern minaret in all of Europe. It is true. Yeah, yeah. That's that's how they advertise it. You can all go up all the way to the top, and there's a castle on top of the hill, which is right in the middle of the downtown. And uh, even our wine is connected to the Turks, the bull's blood. Bull's uh, blood. We'll talk about that in a minute. Deborah, thanks good. for your call. I hope that gives you some ideas. Yes, thank you very thank much. Thank you so and much. And best wishes with the bar mitzvah and all the festivities that are going to be before and after that. Thank you. All the best. You too. Bye-bye. And we have Karen on the line in Woodlands, Texas. Hi, Karen. Thanks for your call. Hi. Good to talk to you. Thanks. I wanted to ask about uh, the trains in Hungary. Uh, I have heard that they're not quite as reliable as in other areas in Europe. And might it be better to try and plan to uh, take some kind of an organized tour rather than striking out on my own? Actually, the train service is reliable. They go on time. So you can always count on that. And it's not a big deal to, to buy the tickets either. If you're the independent traveler, feel free to come there and book your ticket anytime. It's reliable. Uh, we've got daily trains to almost all the directions. That there's no safety concerns in those. I would recommend to take what we call IC, which is intercity train or Eurocity trains. They run there, and that's just your best option. By the way, has, has European money helped out Hungary? Is money coming in to make faster trains and so on? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of plans, of course. Uh, not all the money goes into uh, in, into the uh, railway system, though. Uh, it's, but there's more money coming in than going out because you're one of oh, the yeah. poorer countries of the oh, European yeah. Union. Yeah, definitely. And it's always a reliable service. I use it a lot. If you want to go up to Prague, for example, there's two or three trains daily. Uh, to Vienna, five trains. Um, 
things like that. But uh, is there any special direction that, uh, that you're interested in? Just wanting to see in general the area outside of the, the city. Well, I mm-hmm. guess the question then was uh, take a tour or go on her own. Are there good tours of the countryside of Hungary? Well, you can go to uh, each town independently and explore it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, if you want to join a tour, why not? you got options just like anywhere in Europe there, Karen. Uh, one more question. Is there a good um, carrier as far as the air carriers that's a low-cost carrier that could get you back and forth into Budapest? Uh, there's a lot. So most of them uh, would be flying in uh, from Western Europe. Actually, we've got an entire section of the airport or one terminal uh, terminal one, where the uh, low-cost uh, airlines come in, and uh, I guess you know most of them. Ryanair is flying in right now. There's one called Air Berlin. Um, there's Wizz Air. You just so go these online. These are the new super discount airlines. Ryan there's about Air. ten, ten or eleven that fly in, and it's really cheap. There's an airline company called Wizz Air. There is one. I didn't know that. It sounds very cheap to me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. Now, uh, this has changed the complexion of tourism, really, in a lot of cities that are bases for these discount flights because a lot of just low-end drunken partiers come in from, from London, you know, and they, they party in Prague or in Berlin because they got these cheap flights. Do you have that phenomenon in Budapest where people are coming in on a cheap flight just to enjoy the cheap alcohol and uh, find some girls and go home? Uh, well, there, there's a certain increase in, uh, in in that type of travelers. But, well, the good thing with this one, for example, is that it's not located way out of Budapest. Actually, the low-cost um, terminal is closer to the downtown than the real one. Than so the, the point is one. there's dirt-cheap flights from big coming capitals in, yeah. in Europe coming out to Budapest on discount airlines. And, of course, we see a lot of British guys coming in for, for a stag party. Irish stag people. parties. Yeah. Or uh, hen parties. The girls do it, too. Oh, yeah. I've seen a lot. Hen parties. Recently. Karen, good luck on your travel plans. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're exploring the land of poppy seeds and paprika with my friend and fellow tour guide, Peter Poltzman, who comes to us straight from Hungary. Sean's on the line in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. Hi, Sean. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Hi, fine. My wife and I are planning to come to Eastern Europe this fall, and we're, as wine aficionados, planning on spending most of our time in and around Eger, but I wonder if you might be able to tell me something about how we can connect with local vintners and really get a taste for how the process is done there. Well, there's a lot of wine cellars around the region. Uh, your best option is probably just to go there. There's a tourist information office, and they know all the addresses, all the details, um, well, the closest one is actually within walking distance. There's a valley of beautiful women with about 20, 30 wine cellars over there. But you, is that the name or that's just your description? That, that's, that's the name. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, that's the name. So this is yeah. in Acre. We're talking about going two hours by train or whatever north uh, east of Budapest to the historic town of Eger, And it's sort of in the middle of this great mm-hmm. bull's blood, the, the wine that's nicknamed bull's blood. And it's amazing to me that people are going to Hungary like they would be going to Italy or France to check out the wine. Your wine must be uh, getting more and more prestigious. That's true. That's true. And uh, I'm really happy to see this. This is actually a process because during the communist times, we were responsible for winemaking, so to say. And uh, we could sell everything. But the quality uh, was not too That important. was Stalin's way to do stuff, wasn't it? I mean, there's, <laughs> there's towns in... I, I went to a town in, in Serbia that was in charge of um, making refrigerators. All it did was make refrigerators for that. And it was sort of like grandiose business. And you were in charge of wine for the Warsaw Pact. That's true. That's true. We could sell anything. and um, It's just and grape punch that was fermented. Yeah, it was quantity rather than quality. And right now with the arrival of uh, really cheap wines from all over the world, if you go to a Hungarian supermarket, you can find Chilean wines and Argentinian wines and things like that. But we do have our own really, really good wines. And especially if you know where to go, um, you can find a lot of private family-run businesses that make wine. Tell me more about the Valley of the... Uh, what was Beautiful it? Women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, these are all uh, family vin- vineries that make their own wine. You just go up and then you can even, you know, find the owners over there. If you're there at Wine Harvest, you can even join in. Now, is there a way to, uh, like, go to a wine garden? Are there little uh, rustic restaurants in association with these family-run vineyards? Uh, there's, there's a couple of places that uh, have become, so to say, more touristy, which means that they have got a restaurant right now. Uh, okay. So you can eat there as well. Some of the other wineries would be further out, but it's still worth it. And then most of them, actually, if you give them a heads up, they can prepare anything, full meals. You can even try a goulash, for example, or a Hungarian strudel. Say that again your... so beautifully. Uh... Goulash. <laughs> <laughs> the best way to... Uh... 
endear yourself to a Hungarian is probably serve a good goulash. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, yes. It's a, it's a really easy soup to make. And most of the Hungarians uh, love when people come around and are, and are interesting in their product, in their wine. So I would really encourage you to get out of the big cities and uh, you get a lot of good value for money. Sean, I hope that helps you out. It certainly does. Thanks so much. Good Thank luck you in your so travels. Much. Peter, I'm talking with Peter Poltzman, who's coming to us from Hungary, and I want to talk more about goulash. What is an authentic goulash? Well, first of all, it's different from what you know, because uh, you, you know the poor man's stew. So um, uh, back in Hungary, first of all, this is a soup. It's a clear soup. And literally, the word goulash means herdsman. People out on the Great Plain um, who were you know, responsible for cattle, they made this one. And it was a, an easy one to make, a quick one to make. It's water, uh, cubes of meat, potato, and then basically anything else afterwards, and anything you have, but mostly it's spices. So uh, so the, what distinguishes it really is the spices. S- yeah, spices. And it's a clear th- uh, soup. So don't be surprised if you order a goulash, yeah. then, then it's a soup. That not advice. a stew. Not a stew. Ah. Some of the restaurants actually know the different versions. So sometimes they make like a goulash stew rather than a soup. But if you want to go for the authentic so, stuff, ironically, it's a, a tourist can be disappointed. He's looking for a stew and he gets a soup. That's true. And it's actually authentic goulash. That's true. Now, is paprika an important part of that? It is. It Tell is. us about paprika in Hungary because I believe this is like sort of the quintessential ingredient for Hungarian cuisine. It is. Uh, we put Hungarian paprika into uh, various, various uh, dishes. First of all, it's a Turkish spice. The Turks brought it in. And it's quite ironic that right now you consider this the quintessential Hungarian ingredient. But it's a, it's a Turkish thing. They, they brought it in. And it comes in all different varieties. There's so it's hot and sweet? Hot and sweet. There's actually six different types according to pungency. And you get the hot, you get the sweet. Depending on what region the paprika comes from, it can have a different taste. You get the paprika in wreaths, in a powder form, in in whatever, various different forms. Now, I understand there was a crisis in a couple of years ago, uh, 2004. Oh, you know about that. Yeah. Tell me about this paprika <laughs> crisis, because it really sounds like it almost brought the country to its knees. Um, yeah, actually, no one really realized how important this was until until this point. There was some contamination. They They were mixing something in. And, of course, the authentic Hungarian paprika producers were complaining that this came from abroad. And this uh, this was a bit of a crisis for the industries. And then for, uh, I guess, for a week or two, we couldn't really get paprika. So they, they withdrew everything so from the shelves. So it was contaminated by some kind of fungus or something uh, like um, this? Nope. It was some kind of a metal-related contamination. <laughs> You couldn't buy it? The, the restaurants couldn't serve it, really? Um, uh, of course, they had all the stocks in um, their big warehouses, but everything had to be checked. So they withdrew everything from the shelves. Everything had to be checked again and then shipped out again. And today but, things are okay. Oh, yeah, definitely. Thank Everything's God. all safe. Thank God. Thank God, yeah. <laughs> Our guest, Peter Poltzman, joins us today on Travel with Rick Steves for a guide to Hungary beyond Budapest. We'll take more calls in a moment at 877-333-7425. By email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. Hi, I am Parindi Beretzatelko. I am from Hungary. I'm going to tell you a Hungarian tongue twister. Réparetek mogyorú, koráregge ritka rikkant arigó. In English, carrots, radishes, peanuts, early morning, quail, seldom, chirps. In Hungarian again, réparetek mogyorú, korán reggel ritka rikkant arigó. That's good, thank you. Peter Poltzman guides American visitors through his home country of Hungary from the metropolis of Budapest to the colorful countryside, small towns like Eger, offbeat resorts like Lake Balaton, and lots of other places that, frankly, I can't even pronounce. Let's hear your stories and questions about rural Hungary at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We have Josie on the line in Edinburgh, Pennsylvania. Hi, Josie. Hi, Rick. Thanks for your call. Edinburgh, it must have been Scottish inhabited. Uh, early on it was. Early on it was. Now you're calling thinking about Hungary. What's on your mind? I was a couple of years ago as an exchange student in southern Hungary near Seged in a place called Homnezervasherhe. Yeah, and how was your experience? It was great. Um, 
into the area, it's got a lot of history and culture and stuff. Um, it's also near Opus Pazer, which is the historical site of the beginning of Hungary. Seged has so many beautiful places to go visit. The town I was in had a lot of pottery and just trying to revive the culture of the area. I bet you didn't see very many tourists there. Um, a couple times coming from school, it's I've heard like British people walking by, and it was kind of interesting just hearing them. I bet, because you were just way in the, the distant part of Hungary on the border of Serbia. Yeah, in uh, Romania. All right. Any thoughts, Peter, on that experience? Yeah, I, I'm just wondering, uh, my name is Peter Boltzmann, I'm from uh, Hungary. Um, how much time did you spend in Hodmaze Vasarhei? Ten months. Ten months, oh, good. So you did have some some uh, summer months, some spring and some winter time as well? Yeah. Okay, most of the people tell me really interesting stories about their first big slaughter and things like that. Have you ever participated in these in these things? You know what pig slaughter yeah. is when you go to the countryside to a small village and then people have their pigs there and then pig slaughter is quite a big deal. Um, don't know much about the big fair stuff, but one of my host families, they took me to the person who cleaned their house's actual home and they were doing a pig killing there. Mm-hmm. So they actually yeah. killed the pig in front of the guests? No, no, it's, it was, they were doing a butchering. They hey, just ready it, I, for winter. Well, I guess you got there too late. They started around five o'clock with a shot, and then uh, and and then uh, when you get there, you don't really see um, anything else in the end. So they shoot the pig. That's true, and, and then, then and then they butcher it, and they, they it's part of preparing the meat for the winter. That's it. Yeah, uh, that's the point. And that probably is a tradition that goes way back. Oh yeah, way way right. back. Hey Josie, did you learn the language while you were there? A little bit. Pretty tough, isn't it? Yeah, it was, but... Any it, Hungarian words that you still remember? Uh, pizit, pizit. Oh, Peter, pizit, Peter, pizit. teach us a... What, what was that? Pizit, pizit. A little, a little. Oh, <laughs> it's a good word. I guess you remember sia. Sia, siestok. Mm-hmm. Sia almost sounds like sia in cu in uh, in English. I usually teach that one that word because it's so easy. You remember yo? Yo reggelt, yo napot, yo isakat. What is that? Uh, yo is good in Hungarian. It's like yo regal, yo isakat, yo napot. All right. Any any fantastic Hungarian words? Do you know that we have got one of the longest words in the whole world? Did they tell you that? Yeah, some classmates told <laughs> oh, me that. We always brag about that word. What uh, is it? I'm dying to hear. Uh, the word is megszentségtelenítetetlenségeskedéseitekkel. What does it mean? <laughs> well, personally, I'm not too convinced that the whole thing makes sense, but it's one word, it's 42 letters, and the root word is sent, only five letters, and there's one prefix and about uh, 16 suffixes on it. This is what makes Hungarian so difficult for, for foreigners. But pizit pizit is not too difficult, is it? All right. Yeah. Hey, Josie, you were sent there as a rotary exchange student. Uh, do you think the rotary got uh, the good value out of it that they wanted to? Why were they sending you there, and what was the result? Um, I was sent as an uh, exchange student for high school, and it's it's a cultural exchange. It's usually if a child goes over to a certain country, they try and have from the host club to the sponsored club, they try and get the kids to line up, but it's usually just country to country. Okay. And did you feel like it was a valuable experience when it's all said and done? Yeah. I've been trying to get the college scholarship now. All right. Well, thanks for calling, Josie. Mm-hmm. And thanks. best wishes with your future travels. All thanks. the best. And we have Eliza on the line from Lake Taps in Washington. Hi, Eliza. Hi, Rick. Thanks for your call. What's on your mind? Um, I was also a Rotary Exchange student in Hungary just last year. Um, and I lived in Ketchkami, which is about 80 kilometers south of Budapest. Okay. I see it on the map here. Yeah. Yep. Tell me about this Rotary Exchange. We've had two people who went to Hungary on a Rotary Exchange. What's the um, what's the Rotary up to to do this? Rotary is an international service group. And so the thinking behind the youth exchange program is that if people know more about the world, then they'll be able to help improve it more. And so they try to get students who are interested in learning about something else and experiencing something completely different from what they're doing and sending them somewhere else where they'll be able to learn what 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 it's like in another country 
in hopes that they'll be able to use that knowledge. So you were a beneficiary of that, and do you think the money was well invested? I think so. I'm planning on going back soon. Uh Um, I learned a lot about the culture. I learned the language pretty well and really came to understand not just Hungarian culture, but I understood American culture a lot better because I had that contrast between what I'd grown up with and seeing something that was completely different. And so it's a huge learning experience. And I think they're pretty happy with what I learned from the whole the year there. And Europe has a similar program uh, funded by the government called the Erasmus program. Have you heard of that, Peter? I did. Tell us about the Erasmus program. Um, it's run by the European Union, and there's, uh, there's a lot of money in that one. And the goals are pretty much the same, uh, just to get to know each other, um, see how things work in Amsterdam, in Madrid, in Barcelona. So this is a program from the EU, from Brussels, from paid for by all the different countries of Europe to pay for tens of thousands of students, I, I suppose even more, to travel in, and not to travel, to study in other countries within the EU. That's true. And it's pretty easy to get on the program. So if you do want to study abroad, uh, this helps. And there's, there's plenty of places that you can go with it. So this is a, a difference in the United States and uh, Europe. There's necessary and good causes. In America, we do it with clubs like Rotary or we do it with auctions and fundraisers. And in Europe, they don't really have so many auctions and fundraisers for their students or whatever. They just pay a lot of taxes and the government takes care of that according to the people's will, ideally. That's, that's, that's true. It's a different approach, not that one or the other is better, but uh, this is how things work in Europe. Eliza, thanks for your call. Uh-huh, no problem. Bye now. Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Peter Pultzman, who's a guide and a friend of mine who lives in Budapest. And today we're leaving Budapest. We're talking about Hungary beyond the capital city. Peter, when you think about Hungary, they say if you scratch the ground, you'll find a thermal bath. There's a lot of baths around Hungary. That is true. It's actually um, so much true that we have got almost a thousand hot springs all around the country. One great advantage of leaving Budapest is that uh, you go down to different bigger or smaller places, but you find hot water in each and there's wine around. So spas and wine. Spas and that wine. adds up Good to a relaxing uh, little weekend break out of Budapest if you live there, I suppose. It does. Um, don't be afraid to explore even the smallest place because within whatever, half a, half an hour's drive distance, uh, you can't find a place. Okay, I go into a little town, and it's a, a spa town, and I don't speak a word of Hungarian, and I'd like to go to the bath. In Budapest, they've got them designed for tourists, so because they're used to tourists. You go to a small town, you probably will not see a tourist. Can I manage it? What's the procedure? I'm sure you can. Uh, it's a pretty simple thing. Well, first of all, even in Budapest, it's quite a tradition to go there. So locals would go there. So first of all, you see the locals there. And of course, it's a touristic thing, but it's very much part of local life, very much part of Hungarian culture. Do I need to take my clothes off or do I wear uh, something In too? some you do. In some you don't. Uh, usually if you go to the countryside, you don't. Um, and then You don't what? You don't take your clothes off. So you, you won't see too too much on either. Because you wear a bathing suit. <laughs> uh, you do, you do. Okay. Speedos, most probably. Uh, and don't be surprised to see big guys with small speedos on. I wondered about that. I that's When I think of Hungary, I think of fat guys with very little bathing suits. Well, uh, in the countryside, people tend to be bigger because, uh, well, you eat a lot and then uh, you just don't do too many things, you know, later on in your life. And they do wear big, tiny bathing suits. Yeah. And even ladies. I mean, yeah, it's quite a sight. <laughs> it's a learning experience, but don't be afraid to go to uh, these places. It's and, great. And what do you do at the spa? You just lay in a, in a hot springs? Um, yeah. First of all, it's to relax. Uh, but also there's, there's a lot of places that do massage. And you can try that one. It's pretty easy to sort out. Um, usually they have got some, you know, civilized language over there. If you mm-hmm. speak some German, some, well... Some English, of course, these are the two main languages, and that helps. Uh, they'll be able to give you the ticket, and you know what you uh, sign up to. Usually they do different types of massage, medical massage, water massage. Well, just try whatever you like. You could just kind of throw yourself into the situation, and it probably won't go broke just saying, give me the works. That's true. That's and, true. And you get the massage and the whole the whole thing, and you're hanging out with big fat people in little tight speedos. That's it. And the other thing is, right now many places are family friendly, so take your whole family there. Uh, yes. In Budapest, there's a lot of places where they have got these pools where there's sort of a whirlpool. Yeah, and like rivers in a pool. Oh yeah, flowing around. Uh, I see a lot of people playing chess as they're soaking. <laughs> yeah. Well, once you spend time over there, why not uh, use your time well? Some of these guys actually spend half the day over there, so they bring their own chess set and then they play chess in the water. But there's in the western part of the country, there's one place where there's a thermal lake. You can even go scuba diving in there. And then uh, you just you just hang out. Scuba diving the, in a thermal hot springs, in, in a, a thermal thermal, lake. In a thermal lake. 
Now, when we talk about Hungary, for us Americans, it, it seems Eastern. Do you consider yourself an Eastern European or a Central European? If you ask Hungarians, then uh, we would say we are in the heart of Europe. <laughs> so this is, uh, uh, if you say Eastern Europe, that's sort of a, a tricky term. Uh, because tricky meaning would, you find that a little bit derogatory? Uh, yeah, because we would, we would think that you still consider Hungary part of, uh, you know, the Soviet bloc. So for you, what is Eastern Europe? Well, for us, we would say Ukraine and Russia. Ukraine um, and Russia, and up to the Ural Mountains. The, the geographical eastern edge of Europe is the Ural Mountains, halfway through Russia. Yep, yeah, yeah, obviously. And the other thing is, Hungary has always been on sort of the edge of Western Europe. And in some sense, we were more Europeans than Western Europe itself, because we always wanted to be part of it. We always thought about Europe. We always thought about being part of European culture. But your heritage is these Magyars and oh, this yes. Attila the Hun. And I mean, you see statues of these guys. They look like monsters from some video game. Well, we were called actually the marauding Hungarians and we were part of the nations who invaded the civilized world from the east. Attila the Hun was the leader of the Huns though and Huns and Hungarians were two different tribes. The Huns came earlier than the Hungarians did. Well, because the Magyars came, what, a thousand years ago? Uh, yep. Uh, we officially arrived in 895 or 6, uh, okay. and the Huns arrived before that. But just to make matters more complicated, Attila is a really popular name in Hungarian. And we've got legends about Attila the Hun being an ancestor of the Hungarians, which is uh, not that much true, but so it's You actually nice, admire yeah. Attila the Hun, we you do. barbarians. <laughs> we, He's your we role do. model. Well, you can put it that way, yes. Well, maybe from nation building or something like that. But you've got this Magyar um, heritage, and that comes across today in the language because it was brought it from does. the Far East that way. And you also have the Habsburg heritage, and you have the Turkish heritage. That's true. And you can add Slav as well. So tell me about the Turkish heritage a little bit, because we're at a confrontation right now between Christendom and Islam, and that's nothing new, is it? Uh, no, no. It goes all the way back. Uh, the Turks arrived in Hungary way back in the 1500s. They were in Europe, actually, for centuries and centuries. And then they managed to conquer Hungary and the middle part of Hungary. And they were there for 200 years. Um, many of our Christian churches, for example, were mosques for 150 years. If you go to Budapest, on top of the Castle Hill, one of the most beautiful uh, Christian church, the Church of Matyash, was a Turkish mosque for 150 years. So uh, a Turkish culture, interestingly enough, is very much part of our uh, Hungarian culture as well. And they were down on the Balkan for a lot longer. This, mm -hmm. is, this relates to an email we just received from Fritz in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And Fritz says the Hungarian people are multi-ethnic. What ethnic group do you think best describes the Hungarians? Um, it's a cultural mix. It's... Um, it's a goulash. It's a goulash, <laughs> cultural goulash. We can say that. I guess that's the right term uh, to use. I wouldn't say that there's a 100% true Hungarian at this point. My family name, for example, is Germanic. So Holtzmann. Holtzmann, yes, sounds Auf very Deutsch. Germanic. <laughs> so definitely, Hungarians arrived, but uh, they started mixing with uh, German settlers, and then Slavic tribes were always around, and we actually just conquered them, but they became part of the Hungarian nation. And also, well, Turks at one point uh, arrived... So there's Habsburg. quite a mix. Now, when somebody hears a name, is there some sort of um, economic and social status associated with it? Is German good, for instance? Um, not really. Not really. At this point, no. I wouldn't so uh, go that far. It's, there's no sort of old class that is an inheritance. Uh, probably not. Uh, the only names that you would uh, associate with a special group are gypsy names. Ah, is there some confusion where where the family name does it go first or last? Uh, family name comes first. First. So you're Postman. and first name last. You're Poltzman Peter. That's true. Pe people call you Poltzman Peter? Yeah, my name is Poltzman, because yeah. there's two dots on uh, Poltzman Peter in Hungarian. Oh. And everyone puts the, the family name first and first name last. All right. Just to make matters more confusing. It's fun when you talk to people and make friends with, with locals and countries you're traveling in. You stumble into things that give you an insight into the culture. And sometimes you think there might be an insight, but you're not sure about it. For instance, isn't the guy who invented the Rubik's Cube Hungarian? Oh, he is Erno Rubik. What is his name? Erno Rubik. In Hungarian, we would say Rubik Erno. Erno Rubik. Okay. Now, wh what does that say about Hungarian culture? Um, I find Hungarians uh, are quite an inventive lot and have always been. Erno Rubik is just a great example, and uh, we cannot 
only mention names whom uh, you might know in an American context. We had a lot of intelligent guys from uh, Edward Teller worked on the uh, Manhattan Project. But we have got people right now in Hungary who are really inventive as well. And Rubik uh, made the cube way back in the 80s. And uh, the kids early still 80s, are enjoying the Rubik's cube. Oh, we had the um, World Championships in Budapest. The cube came home and we had the World Cup in Budapest with Hungarians winning a couple of competitions. Uh, and I guess one guy won like seven competitions. So alone. hometown boy wins the hometown invention, the Rubik's 16 Cube. 16 years old. This is quite a tricky thing because you have got to put like uh, cubes together with your eyes uh, folded. So 1,100 years after those first Magyars galloped in from the steppes of Asia, we have smart Hungarians that doing is the true. Rubik's Cube faster than anybody else on the planet. <laughs> that is true. Peter Polsman, thank you for joining us from Hungary. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. How do you say goodbye in Hungarian? See ya. See ya. Can I use that informal word? Yeah, sure. I love that. See, see ya. ya later. How do you say see ya later? Goodbye. Well, uh, see you visa, again. Uh, if you want to use the formal version, you say visont latastra. Let's use the informal. See ya. See ya, Peter. Thank you very much. Send us a souvenir of your travels in the form of an original haiku. There's a submission form in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Matt Harmon from Charleston, West Virginia, sent us this haiku after hearing one of our programs about Bulgaria, where he traveled to attend a friend's wedding. His friend's mother worked at a mud bath in Petrick and offered Matt a chance to take a quick dip. Here's what it felt like. Feet sink through soft mud. Thick sweat runs to green water. Limbs cool in hut shade. Grace Chen from Seattle sends us this tasty one. Italy's sweet gifts, gelato and Nutella, what happy girls need. And Christine Forster from Chicago praises the restorative power of a good vacation. Leaving my hometown, hungry eyes with tired limbs, life is fresh again. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. You can read Rick's travel blogs at our website, ricksteves.com, and click on the radio tab for a form to send us your original travel haiku or to post your thoughts and comments about your travels and what you hear on the show. Thanks to Sarah McCormick, Andrew Wakeling, and Robin Cronin for their help, and to Cheryl Harris for reading today's travel haiku. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Eastern Europe and every other corner of the continent. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.